This is The Guardian. Is this the end for MPs having second jobs? I'm Jessica Elgott, Chief Political Correspondent for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. That's not an apology. Everybody else, everybody else has apologised for him, but he won't apologise for himself. A coward, not a leader. On Monday, many Conservatives hoped the end of the sleaze scandal that had been hanging over them for two weeks was finally in sight. But what should have been a quiet passing of the motion to suspend the former MP Owen Paterson exploded into fury when a lone MP bellowed, object, dragging the debacle into Tuesday and yet another debate on standards. To the dismay of most Tories, the sleaze row that has engulfed the Conservative Party isn't going away. Proper independence and powers for the Business Appointments Committee and banning these job swaps. Will the Prime Minister take those steps? Labour is today putting forward a proposal to ban MPs having second jobs as paid consultants. And in a surprise move, the Prime Minister sort of agreed with the opposition, proposing his own similar ban. But backbenchers are still furious. Their reputation with voters has been muddied by the scandal. And now they might have to give up some of their lucrative positions. Can Boris Johnson steady the ship? Plus, we talked to The Guardian sketchwriter John Crace on his new book, A Farewell to Calm, and how reality has overtaken satire. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, to make sense of a fairly nonsensical week in Westminster, I'm joined by The Guardian columnist, Raphael Baer. Raph, we're speaking at a slightly uh, inopportune time because MPs are about to debate this and vote on it. Uh, I think it's probably worth remembering that Owen Paterson might only be sort of 10 or 11 days into a suspension and people have basically forgotten about it, had the PM know, not and, to... And, and there almost certainly wouldn't have been a recall um, petition and then he would have been back in Parliament. So in terms of uh, sort of discharging the full chamber of bullets into your own feet uh, by the Prime Minister, that is, is quite a spectacular a piece of political self-injury. Yeah, it certainly is. And I, I, I certainly think that, that Tory MPs who are pretty incandescent last night. Um, to spell out today's vote for us, what, what does it really mean? Does it really affect second jobs? Um, how different is Labour's proposal? Well, exactly. I mean, it's an opposition day debate. So it's one of those, one of the sort of, I think, 20 days a year that, uh, or parliamentary days, that is, that um, that the opposition gets to set the agenda. So Labour have seized the agenda to say, you know, eventually be a binding motion, more or less banning most second jobs. I mean, it's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, and the government have issued a sort of table their counter amendments uh, to try and steal Labour's thunder, saying something similar, but not quite the same, <laughs> because what the, the crucial difference is that the government motion is a little bit more in a vague general area of we really ought to look at this and yes, we should have a cross-party process and no, obviously within what's reasonable, uh, MPs shouldn't be allowed to have second jobs. They should be f- focusing on their constituencies. They wouldn't, under the government version, and the government has a majority in the House of Commons, um, there, there wouldn't be a, a substantive motion at the end of it. That is, it wouldn't sort of become law very quickly. So on the one hand, the government is sort of saying, well, we are now acting on this. In reality, there is some long grass that you can see into which this might be kicked. Uh, and on top of that, you have the additional problem that in the, in the government language, uh, the motion sort of uh, 
relies quite a lot on unclear concepts of what it would be reasonable to think an MP ought to be doing, you know, to prioritise their uh, their constituency work. And that is something that, as you just said a moment ago, Tory MPs are very cross about because it's unclear there will be marginal cases uh, and to cut a long story short it looks like Boris Johnson acted essentially tactically to try and stop Labour from seizing the initiative and he's just as a result created more mess and headache for himself. What What's behind this massive U-turn from Boris Johnson? Is it being spooked by the polls? Who's advising him to do this? Um, is it just, you know, him being as a Dominic Cummings style shopping trolley, just wavering from one to the other? Or is there is there any kind of strategy behind this at all? Uh, no, there's definitely no strategy behind it. And and I think the shopping trolley thing is is the best analysis of it. I, I think behind that, there is a, an important sort of culture war within the Conservative Party between essentially the younger, more recently elected MPs who are just a little bit more in tune with recently acquired Tory voters who who might feel quite a strong allegiance to the Conservative Party now, especially because of Brexit, and they like Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. Um, but they're not lifelong Tories and they're not very necessarily very well off and they really don't like the smell of this stuff. And that's very different from the old guard Brexiteers who essentially circled the wagons around Owen Paterson. He was one of them. He was a chum. But he seems to have taken a, a lead from a group of people who, it turns out, weren't very well plugged in to the mood of the country, but also to the mood of the, the rest of the Parliamentary Conservative Party. And now he has, the, the Prime Minister has had a chance to understand quite what a misjudgment that was. He just wants to undo it as quickly as possible. And the person who's standing up saying, yes, we absolutely must do something about this, as opposed to the perpetrator. How how badly do you think Johnson's reputation is being damaged by this in the Parliamentary Party? I was really struck by a piece I read in Con Home this week by Bim Afalami, who was um, uh, Liz Truss's PPS, so her her parliamentary aide. So he's, he's, he's an MP who's on the, essentially on the government payroll, saying that the government is close to losing the benefit of the doubt with voters, cataloguing some of the errors that, that, that have been made. And do you think that's significant? Now, let's not forget that before Boris Johnson became leader of the Conservative Party, there were an awful lot of Tory MPs who who would say in private, they would swear blind, it is my mission to stop Boris Johnson from becoming leader of the Conservative Party. And right? they thought he was unworthy. They thought uh, he was he was sort of morally derelict. Some of those people that then served in his cabinet, right? That's politics. But the, the crucial difference was the contract that he essentially signed with the Conservative Party was you know, don't worry about me, my values, what I do, my private life, my behaviour, because I'll, I can get you victory. And, and, he, and he delivered on that. And the problem then becomes if, if as soon as that slips, as soon as his brand is tarnished, there really is nothing left. He's just hollowed out the Conservative Party. So I think it is very brittle. But ultimately, you know, as I've said probably on this podcast before, cardinal rule, don't bet against Boris Johnson. Let's look at some of the key events of this week that's kind of led us to where we are. Things first got dramatic again, I guess, on Monday evening when when Christopher Chope, uh, an MP I'm sure we've discussed on this podcast before, um, objected to a motion that would have just accepted the Standards Committee's finding on Paterson and, and sort of passed it through on the nod without any debate and quietly undid what the government did last week, which is now accepts was a big mistake. And because of him, and he's a Conservative MP, uh, that meant they had to be dragged through again on Tuesday where there was another debate and, and Jacob Rees-Mogg had to do a big mea culpa. Um, it was a pretty a, a priceless moment. And tell us a bit about Chope and why he might have done it. Well, okay. So the thing about Christopher Chope is 
I, I mean, I don't want to be too ad hominem, um, but there is this technique that you can do, in, you know, when there's a motion going through and someone says you, you shout object uh, and it basically has to go to, to a vote. But he has this habit of doing it and he claims to do it because he believes very profoundly in parliamentary scrutiny. And therefore, you know, he doesn't like the idea that something is just being nodded through and you have to talk about it. But he also has a habit of doing it on things that are really quite, can be really quite objectionable, certainly from a liberal point of view. So I think on making upskirting uh, a, a specific offence, used parliamentary procedure to thwart it, uh, on a posthumous pardon for Alan Turing, <laughs> the, the Dutch Park code breaker, uh, who was convicted for homosexuality. Uh, it was, I mean, it was very telling that when I think he intervened then in the debate and it was the Labour side that was crying more and more, you know, they love to see the kind of blue on blue action. So for people who like seeing Tories squirm, it was, it was a great moment. But I mean, obviously, if, if you're a Conservative MP, it, it was not. Before we go, I want to talk about what could be another really difficult moment for Boris Johnson uh, later this week and something that I think may have the potential to do even more long term damage. It's got this, you know, obviously the government's intention in, in trying to keep these red wall seats that where voters might be turned off by the, the, the sleaze stuff is that, well, it's got this, you know, this big levelling up plan. But oh, wait, later we hear this week that Johnson is going to change the, the long delayed HS2 rail plan to, to cut off that branch to Leeds. It also looks like this Northern Powerhouse Rail, what something he, I think, announced on the third day of his time in office and promised again during the election is, is, is also going to be cancelled. So, he he really has waded into real difficulties, probably because the Treasury has said no um, at the end of this week with this integrated rail plan announcement. It looks very much as if, you know, a very early test of whether levelling up, if it means anything, uh, is supposed to mean the kind of infrastructure that would bring parts of the North and Midlands into a competitive place with the South East. It's simply not going to happen. Uh, not certainly not in time for the next general election. And there was a, yeah, there was this very interesting moment. I think you know, a lot of newspapers in the north of England all simultaneously uh, published the same front page. It was a mock-up of the train spotting film poster, and it had a, a number of government figures on the front of it. Uh, train spotting, obviously, being the gag because high-speed rail, uh, and it said in big letters, "Deliver what you promised." Right. So choose our future, choose the north. Uh, was the subhead, you know? So it's. That's a that's a shot across the bowels of the government from the north of England saying, you know, people here voted for you for the first time. Uh, and if you stitch them up, they're not going to forget. They're essentially calling it, a bet you know, seeing newspapers line up to essentially call this a betrayal feels like a moment. And, and how do you think that will translate to Tory MPs and how they react to it? There are only really three things to Boris Johnson's premiership. There was get Brexit done, which he sort of hasn't done. And that's only going to become more clear over time because of the Northern Ireland Protocol and various other things. There was dealing with the pandemic, which, you know, we all can argue about how effectively he did it. But, you know, I think a lot of people have given him the benefit of the doubt and the vaccine definitely helps. And he sort of thinks he's sort of come out the other side of that. And then the only other thing is levelling up. That is the agenda. That is his big thing. And you know, a lot of Tory MPs have for a long time been worried that it doesn't mean anything. And as you say, uh, in the Treasury, there is this question of who's going to pay for it. Uh, so I think it would be very damaging to the Prime Minister if 
certainly a lot of Tory MPs start to talk about levelling up the way they used to talk about um, David Cameron's big society. And if you remember, the big society was, it was Cameron's big idea. And quite quickly, you had Tory MPs being very sneery about it, saying, I don't even know what this means. What even is it? It's just a sort of a rubric that you put on your press release that you're going to release anyway. You just call it a levelling up project as opposed to anything else. Uh, it's all guff and hot air. And I think we're probably quite close to that being the case of levelling up, that it's done in, it's always in inverted commas with an eye roll, as opposed to it being an actual legacy that Boris Johnson might ever have. Raphael Baer, thanks ever so much, as always, for joining me. Thank you. After the break, how our political sketchwriter injected humour into a year of Westminster mayhem. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott, the Chief Political Correspondent for The Guardian. Now, since Boris Johnson was elected in 2019, Westminster has seen its fair share of U-turns, bluster and chaos, giving The Guardian's political sketch writer much to write about. But how to find humour in times of a pandemic, when the government's handling of it made the difference between life or death for so many people? In the latest of a trilogy, The Guardian's sketch writer John Crace has collected his finest pieces – chronicling this extraordinary period in a new book, A Farewell to Calm, The New Normal Survival Guide. I caught up with John earlier this week to talk about the book, but just to warn him with kids in the room, there's a phrase or two mentioned that might not be for their ears. John, you start your introduction to your new book saying that the election of Boris Johnson made you almost miss Theresa May. How do you think that Johnson saw his time as PM is going, you know, once he sort of got Brexit out of the way, what was his kind of grand vision for it? Or was it just about achieving it? I think it was basically just about achieving it. I mean, I, since I wrote the introduction, I think my view has hardened and I definitely do miss Theresa May now. There is no almost to it. I mean, I think sort of Boris has been a sort of complete disaster. I think he thought it was just going to be fun, there would be some Brexit sort of ructions with the EU from which he could emerge triumphant with some kind of deal. And I think he, I think he just thought that, like his entire life, so, you know, he was going to have some kind of entitled success. I suppose in a way he kind of lived his best life as it was when he was mayor of London and a role which he could kind of project, which obviously has lots of serious responsibilities, but none of which he really seemed to take. And lots of it was about kind of being the MC, the the, the spokesman, the yeah. chair, you know, the fun, the, doing the fun stuff. Yeah, the front man, yeah. you know, the man on the sort of high wire, zip wire that gets sort of stuck halfway down waving a flag. I, I think the thing that he really liked most about being London mayor was that the responsibility wasn't too great. And if he wanted to sneak out on his bike for an assignation, there were no security detail to stop him. Whereas sort of now his day is sort of monitored from six in the morning until 11 at night. And I suspect he finds that really restricting. You spend the period of this book chronicling 2020 to 2021 and it's probably one of the most extraordinary periods in British politics I mean we almost certainly said that about the Brexit period as well but you, you knew with Boris Johnson's PM that you'd have a lot of material to write about but was it harder this period of time to sketch when 
you know, the situation is so grave. I mean, ultimately, Brexit was very emotional for a lot of people, but nothing like in the way that COVID has been. The simple answer is yes. I mean, you you know, the humour became darker. There was a sort of an angrier feel to the sketches, I think, because it felt like the, the satire had to be on point. Really. I mean, when you've got, you know, up to a thousand people dying a day, it's just not funny. But somehow, you know, the sketch is a way of sort of venting that kind of frustration at government because, you know, for a long period of time, we did see sort of utter incompetence from the government. I, 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 I'm shaking hands, continue. I was, at a, I was at a hospital the other night where I think there were, a few, there were actually a few coronavirus uh, patients and I shook hands with everybody, uh, you'll be pleased to know, and, and I continue to shake hands. And I mean, especially early on in the crisis, I mean, we know that Boris missed five COBRA meetings to do with COVID. He delayed locking down because he sort of went on holiday to Chequers for 10 days. And again, there was sort of, sort of, you know, Carrie had to have her baby shower, I think it was, because he wanted, didn't want to lock down before that. You know, so there was a lot to get angry about. And there are some things which just go beyond satire. And one of the things I'm particularly thinking about in that period is the Dominic Cummings episode, especially that that moment in the Rose Garden when he talked about needing to test his eyesight. I mean, could you have ever conjured anything like that satirical? You've 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 famously satirised Dominic Cummings by you know talking about snake oil pussies, etc. But this was this was if anything you know more more ridiculous than that. Well, it sort of rather backed up my previous sort of characterization of him but no i mean the simple answer is that when you when you when you've got material like that all you can do is sort of act as a transcription service and just sort of take all the lols that you can get really i mean it it, it was just extraordinary hearing him say that my wife was very worried particularly given my eyesight had seemed to seem to have been affected by the disease she did not want to risk a nearly 300-mile drive with our child, given how ill I had been. We agreed that we should go for a short drive to see if I could drive safely. His eyesight had been affected by his COVID experience with COVID, and therefore the best thing to do was to pile his wife and his young son in the car to go on a 30-mile drive to Barnard Castle. I mean... You couldn't imagine anything more idiotic. You could just about imagine him doing it on his own. But to take the whole family, yeah, let's see how many other people we can wipe out today. It was a real this sort of extraordinary moment that brought the country together, wasn't it? I was I was on maternity leave at the time and watching it in my flat, which was above another flat, and both of us had the windows open. I could hear the people downstairs shouting things at the TV and saying how extraordinary things were. You almost never get those kind of moments in politics. No, it really did bring people together. But the extraordinary thing, uh, I mean, this is again part of the chaos of the last two years, is that... Boris was prepared to defend him. He needed him so badly that Boris allowed him to use the Rose Garden. I mean, he breached sort of virtually every kind of prime ministerial protocol. All those tweets from cabinet ministers about it is what any father would have done. Yeah, exactly. 
you know, and within six months, Dominic was out of office having rowed with Carrie, and they're sworn enemies for life. I mean, Dominic has been sort of writing blogs sort of to his heart's content. Um, but the last one he wrote, his, his, his characterization of Boris as a shopping trolley sort of veering down, is sort of clearly sticks with him and he won't let it go. And can't believe that, you know, all his insider information on how useless Boris is hasn't brought him down. Yeah, well, he seems determined to do it. This book is the third in a trilogy. And do you feel that your role as a sketch writer has changed a lot over the course of the last 18 months or since you, you published your last book because of the, the way that politics has changed um, obviously, the characters have changed, but but politics has changed as well. Or does it all this remain fundamentally the same? I I think in a way it's the same. I mean, when I started sketching in 2014, politics was a niche interest for a lot of people. There were a lot of nerds. I was one of them who would sort of follow the live blog sort of avidly, but. It was a tamer, much more, less emotional pursuit. But since David Cameron's sort of election in 2015, and then his decision to go early for the Brexit referendum, I mean, the whole political landscape has sort of become much more polarised. People who weren't interested in politics have become politicised, I think. One of the things that must be the case in sort of following politics is that your kind of sketch writing has to adapt to the to the characters and their rise and falls. I mean, you have this great character of the Maybot, and obviously that's kind of redundant now because she's gone, <laughs> and, and, and Cummings as well. But also we you have this sort of great Mac Hancock characterization as Tigger, um, and now his, uh, his, his fortunes have taken a blow yeah. as well. Um, do, do, you, do you ever miss... Miss Tigger and sketching Tigger. Uh, the one that I really miss is Chris failing Grayling. <laughs> yeah. Because really, it was hard to imagine anyone quite so incompetent. The other, the other thing I called him was Doormat, because he would literally let people yeah. walk all over him. Um, anything for a sort of bit of attention and to be in the cabinet. Do you think anyone in, in number 10 does... Cabinet ministers, they read your sketches. Do people come up to you, senior people? You've ever been confronted by Chris Grayling? No, in fact, the other day I did see Chris. I, I was I was walking along the around towards Portcullis House, and I saw Chris Grayling coming towards me, and I kind of thought, "Oh God, this is really embarrassing. I don't know what to say. Please, please don't, please don't look at me." And I kind of looked to one side away from him and he looked to one side away from me and we kind of passed that moment sort of passed and I kind of thought it was a moment of abject cowardice from me really um, but generally I don't get to see the cabinet so I don't really know what the cabinet themselves think of me I mean I think there is an element that I mean as a sketch writer if you're rude about one MP, then you sort of make friends immediately with 649 others, because at heart they're all sort of uber competitive and, you know, they, there's a kind of schadenfreude attached to it as well, that you've sort of gone for this person and not them. I see you as a confidant for whom they can slag off their colleagues too. 
<laughs> yeah, as a kind of conduit. Um, last question. Your your book's called A Farewell to Carmen. It, I was interested in the, the sort of subheading, which is a, the new normal survival guide. Are we are we forever in this kind of new normal? Do you think? How do you see the next few years playing out? Will we ever return to the kind of politics as normal, new issues? Or, or, or do you think you know Johnson's government's going to be defined by these kind of crises, scandals, constantly? And does that even ever make a difference with the voters anyway? Whether it makes a difference with the voters, I mean, I just don't know. I mean, Boris does seem to have. I mean, what every prime minister would like is a sort of a Teflon-coated skin where stuff doesn't seem to stick to him. Things that might bring down another government or another prime minister don't seem to apply to him. I keep thinking politics must one day return to... I mean... How it started, when you how, started. To how, how it started. And I can remember in January 2020, when the Brexit agreement was finally signed, we all thought, oh, we're all going to go back to a sort of steady pace of political life. And then the coronavirus hit. And since then, you know, it's been, it feels like it just hasn't stopped. I mean, I do think that the chaos will continue with Boris for as long as he chooses to stay as prime minister, because I just don't think he's got the grasp of the detail. But the sort of one lesson that Boris has taught us throughout, you know, anyone who's studied his political career over the last 20 years, is that he betrays everyone in the end, including himself. That's what I know to end on. Thank you ever so much for joining me, Donkey. Thank you. And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra as Jonathan Friedland and Lauren Gambino look at why the Vice President Kamala Harris is reportedly at loggerheads with the White House. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Raphael Baer and John Crace. The producer was Yolinka Fan. I'm Jessica Elgott. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Thank you.